It was a little after 10 a.m. on April 8, 2010. 52-year-old Debbie Montgomery Johnson needed to stretch her legs. This meeting was taking ages. She stepped out to the hallway for a break and checked her phone, seeing if she missed any updates. Debbie found more than a dozen missed calls. She kept scrolling. A deluge of texts and voicemails waited for her. Panicked, she tapped a voicemail from her son, Chris. A pit grew in her stomach. Then, her whole world stopped. The next hour was a blur. Her colleagues gathered around, trying to decide what to do for Debbie. They couldn't let her drive in this state. Could someone else take her home? Debbie tried to digest her new reality. She had to get to Park Vista High to her youngest son, Matt. She couldn't let him hear the news from anyone else. When Debbie finally saw Matt, her composure crumbled. She cried for the first time since the call. She cried for everything, for her children, for the massive question mark that now punctuated their lives. Her husband, Lou, had suffered a heart attack that morning. In 15 minutes, he was gone. And she was alone. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're following Florida widow Debbie Montgomery Johnson and her relationship with a catfishing conman. We'll see how an innocuous online relationship spiraled into emotional dependency and, ultimately, massive financial fraud. Next week, we'll follow Debbie as she confronts her con artist and tries to make sense of the lies she's been fed. Finally, we'll track how the FBI handled the case and learn how Debbie warned others not to fall into the same trap that cost her so much. In 2010, Debbie Montgomery Johnson was a middle-aged widow still reeling from the death of her husband. In this vulnerable time, she met the man of her dreams on a Christian dating website. Or so she thought, Soon, Debbie joined a wave of Americans entangled in digital-age love scams. What started as a simple internet fling spiraled out of control. In the end, Debbie lost years of her life and over a million dollars to a man 
that never even existed. Debbie Montgomery Johnson grew up in rural Woodstock, Vermont. She was well-liked, with plenty of friends, but she sometimes felt out of place there. Her father owned a dental practice in town. Debbie knew the successful business allowed her family small luxuries that others couldn't afford. Sometimes her friends teased that she was too good for them. So when Debbie was accepted to the exclusive Phillips Exeter Academy as a teenager, she was determined to make the most of it. She worked as hard as she could to excel. She spent countless hours studying, often at the price of a social life. After all, boarding school wasn't an expense every family could afford. After Exeter, Debbie attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and later joined the U.S. Air Force in 1982 as an intelligence officer. It was there, during basic training, that she met her husband, Lou Montgomery. Lou was bold. His time as a missile launch officer made him outspoken and brash. Only a few weeks after they met, he told Debbie that she was going to marry him. She laughed off his comment, but not long after, the two started dating. And once they were both assigned to Washington, D.C. following training, Lou proposed. Throughout their 25-year marriage, Debbie's relationship with Lou was full, complete with four children. In their free time, Lou loved to tinker with his car, and Debbie was passionate about volunteering with the Women's Auxiliary Club at church. Though Debbie acknowledged that the marriage had its share of ups and downs, she was never bored. Even through the rougher patches, Lou's companionship was comforting. Though some lament the predictability of marriage, Debbie loved the security of Lou. To lose him meant losing the stability she knew so well. Debbie referred to the terrible, stomach-churning moment when she learned of Lou's death as the call. When she listened to a voicemail tell her that her husband of 25 years had died of a sudden heart attack, her life changed forever. This new reality was hard to accept. Debbie and Lou hadn't been able to say goodbye properly. He'd been heading off to West Florida for a quick trip. She hadn't prepared for him not to return. There was no emotional closure. Now. She was the sole head of their household and a single mum of four. With one son still at home finishing high school and three other adult children all mourning the loss of their father, Debbie was overwhelmed. But it wasn't just the emotional fallout she had to navigate. She had to take up the mantle of running Lou's business, an online vitamin company, on top of her own job as a public school district treasurer. And Debbie also had to take care of the house, the pets, and her children. She was overworked, grieving, and had no one to confide in. No one to help take care of her. Debbie's position, though heartbreaking, isn't uncommon. Many adults lose a spouse or partner midlife. Not only do they have to cope with the trauma of their grief, but oftentimes a loss of resources and social support as well. As family psychologist Florence Caslow explained, solitude and emptiness can cause despair and a feeling of not knowing where to turn, what to do, how they will survive, 
and whether they want to go on without their partner. Anyone in that situation would benefit from someone to talk to, and though Debbie knew she would want a new partner eventually, the idea of finding someone felt almost terrifying. Dating as an older woman is daunting, especially as a single mum of four kids. With all the obligations she was now juggling, it was difficult for Debbie to feel like her best self, let alone like a normal single gal ready to put herself back on the market. After all, she was still reeling from Lou's death. In the months after he'd passed, Debbie's loneliness was palpable, especially at night. When she crawled into bed at the end of the day, she barely bothered to unfold more than a quarter of their king-size blankets. Lou's side stayed untouched, unless one of the cats snuggled in. Debbie explained in her autobiography, The Woman Behind the Smile, With the kids gone and the house basically empty, I knew I wasn't going to get many more hugs, and I was feeling starved for that close loving. So, Debbie swallowed her fear. Meeting someone new would help her feel a little less alone. Though she still held on to a little hesitation, it had been a long time since she'd been single, over 27 years, and times had changed. Online, people seemed shallow, flaunting their bodies and accomplishments. The expectations felt enormous. But Debbie couldn't deny the loneliness. So, in September of 2010, about five months after Lou passed, 52-year-old Debbie got back out there. Her family and friends were all supportive of the decision. In fact, her girlfriends were nearly giddy when she created a profile for a dating website. She wanted to give off a good impression, not sell herself short, but she also wanted to be honest. She explained, I came with four children, a business, a good education, and good career experiences. She was proud of her accomplishments, her history. She was no blushing bride, and she intended to be upfront about that. And by doing so, she hoped anyone she met would return the same kind of sincerity. Unfortunately, Debbie's frank honesty is exactly what made her a target. A Consumer News and Business Channel report warned women between the ages of 45 and 76 to be hyper-diligent when pursuing online dating. For single women, this particular age range tends to indicate either divorce or partner death, life events that often end in a financial windfall. Predators often hunt for lonely individuals who have access to money. And Debbie's profile was bound to stick out. Disclosing valuable assets like owning a business was like flipping on a beacon. A Chicago Tribune article urged those dating online to avoid revealing monetary details, especially if widowed. The article gave two reasons. Quote, Talking about how financially secure you are tells scammers that you are worth targeting. 
while telling good matches that you don't think you are good enough to get a date without telling people you've got money. But Debbie thought disclosing she ran her own business was just another way to show she was independent, that she was a catch. Debbie was looking for a partner who not only respected her value, but was spiritual like she was. She said, I posted my profile on a couple of online sites, but the one I thought would be best for me was a faith-based dating site. She thought someone who shared her beliefs would be more likely to also share her values. So a religious website, she assumed, would ensure moral members. But she couldn't be more wrong. On November 14, 2010, after a month or two of looking at profiles, a match appeared in Debbie's inbox on LDS Planet, a Christian dating site for members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Curious, she clicked on the match's accompanying account. A quick scan of the profile checked off nearly every trait Debbie wanted in a partner. Taller than her at 5'11", the right age at 55, widowed, and regularly attended church. The profile photo showed a rugged, outdoorsy guy with a baseball cap and sunglasses. His smile looked warm and inviting, but it got better. The message he'd sent exceeded Debbie's every expectation. He told her he was looking for a long-term relationship that he hoped would grow from friendship to companionship to potentially marriage. He was guided by faith. He cherished his only son with his entire heart and he was committed to staying in shape. Debbie was so struck by his note that she immediately replied. A few days later, he wrote back, Thanks for responding to my mails. You know my username already from the dating site, but just for the records, you can call me Eric Cole. Coming up, Debbie discovers that Eric Cole is everything she'd hoped for and more. Now back to the story. In 2010, Debbie Montgomery Johnson lost her husband of 25 years to a heart attack. She was devastated, left grieving and unbearably lonely. But a few months later, she committed to putting herself back out there and signed up for a Christian dating site. A few months into her search, she made a promising match. A single father committed to his faith and his physical fitness. He wrote, You can call me Eric Cole. The sentence struck Debbie as odd, almost too formal. But as she turned the words over in her mind, she rationalized, Eric must be British. And so she dismissed her initial gut feeling and continued chatting with the mysterious Englishman. During their initial conversations, Eric told Debbie about his experience as a humble widower returning to dating. Losing his wife, Sarah, had created a vast emptiness within him, and the period following her death tested his faith in God. His world revolved around his family, or his jewels, as he called them. But what was a family without a loving partner? He was looking for someone to share the mundanities of life with, someone to love. Eric presented himself in a way that quelled almost 
all of Debbie's fears and reservations about online dating. Without even being asked, Eric revealed that he joined the site only after prompting from his older sister, Mary. He wasn't vain or looking for a partner to meet unrealistic physical standards. Instead, his concern was the inner beauty of that special lady. Debbie took all of this in with relief. It seemed she had actually found someone who perfectly shared her lifestyle and values. But this simpatico connection was all part of the scam. A skilled con artist listens carefully to their victims and quickly identifies what they care about. Then they use those things to lure them into their scheme. Eric realized that, as a dating widow, Debbie felt a lot of pressure to recapture the beauty of her youth and compete with the other single women online. And so, he was able to project back exactly what she wanted to hear. That he was interested in her soul, her personality, not physical beauty. Knowing this, Debbie felt more positive about the relationship's potential. Clearly, Eric's priorities were in line with her own. Even his occupation, a longtime contractor in the international timber industry, was a field within Debbie's realm of knowledge. She had investments in trees in Costa Rica. It was just one more thing they could share. But less than a week into their conversations, Eric had some troubling news. He was heading overseas for a job soon and was worried he wouldn't be able to access the dating site they were messaging through. So he asked if they could switch to Yahoo Chat instead. Though he offered no clear rationale as to why messaging would be accessible when the dating site wasn't, Debbie still agreed. In fact, she was flattered. Clearly, their conversations were important to him. Because Yahoo Chat was an instant messaging service, communication became much faster than the emails they were sending back and forth on LDS Planet. With Eric overseas, their conversations pivoted to odd hours. Night chats, as Debbie called them. And they were invigorating. Even in the early hours of the morning, despite her fatigue, if Debbie heard the ping of her computer, she'd snap out of bed. Debbie recalled, My heart skipped a beat and I would literally run to the computer across the house to accept the call. We'd sit there and chat for an hour or two and that would get me through the alone times I felt while lying in bed. There was something about Eric's continued interest that was intoxicating. That bubbly feeling of lust and affection. As many individuals in new relationships are prone to do, Debbie abandoned any caution in favor of enjoying the thrill. The prospect of what would come from the relationship overshadowed many of the hesitations she'd had before matching with Eric. Debbie drank in his attention. She said, I needed the loving sentiments that he expressed to get me through each day. I wanted to be worthy of his affections and, with each note, my heart was filled with joy. Eric's constant flattery had broken through her armor. After months without this kind of tenderness from anyone else in her life, 
She was grateful. She felt seen. Debbie wanted more. Soon, they spoke on the phone for the first time. When she heard Eric's British accent, it gave her a rush. From that point forward, they occasionally had phone calls, but only he could get a reliable connection. And each time she heard his voice, she always got the same giddy feeling. It was a shame he was never able to stay on the line for long. But despite her rapid infatuation, Debbie was careful not to count her chickens. During her first few weeks talking to Eric, she proceeded carefully. And she was just as cautious with her friends and family. First, she floated the possibility that she was dating to her youngest son, Matt, just to get him comfortable with the idea. Then she told those close to her a similar story, this time specifying that she'd already met someone online, but she always kept the details vague. It was Debbie's brothers that first voiced their doubts over her internet fling. What did she really know about Eric? They insisted, we need to do a background check. Though their concerns were typical to the trope of older, male protector, they weren't wrong. But Debbie simply brushed them off. She said, I looked over to the boys and thought, are you guys kidding? This is only dating. But by the time Debbie mentioned Eric to her brothers, she had already formed her own opinions about him. Judgment is clouded by infatuation. And Debbie didn't want hers dampened by the possibility that her new beau's intentions were less than genuine. The relationship was thrilling, and she had to see where it would lead. Debbie and Eric continued chatting daily for the next few weeks. They talked about everything from their Christian faith to work to their families. Eric admitted to Debbie how much he missed his son, Kenny, who lived in the UK with Eric's sister while he traveled for work. Debbie empathized, and eventually she told him about her own kids. Their conversations only reinforced her idea that they shared values. Family was top on Debbie's list. Hearing Eric talk about his commitment to fatherhood, Debbie allowed her mind to wander. She thought of visiting him in the UK, of meeting Kenny, and even of Eric coming to the States to meet her own children. Very quickly, Debbie believed Eric was a man she could have a life with. Debbie marked Thanksgiving of 2010, a few weeks after they began chatting, as the day she and Eric moved their relationship to the next level. They spent upwards of eight hours on Yahoo Chat as Debbie gave him the play-by-play -play of her Thanksgiving day. She told him each dish her family was preparing and why it was special. She wanted to make him feel included in their gathering. This intimacy of sharing a holiday, even if via instant message, solidified Eric's place in Debbie's life. It was exactly what she would do for a family member who wasn't able to make it to the festivities. From that point forward, Eric wasn't just someone Debbie was chatting with online. He was her boyfriend, an irreplaceable companion. Eric had quickly won Debbie's trust.
and soon he would put it to the test. Soon after Thanksgiving, Eric told Debbie about a friend of his who was also living abroad. The friend was also trying to find a partner on the internet, searching for the same kind of happiness and connection that Eric and Debbie found in each other. But the friend was having trouble paying his membership dues to the dating website LDS Planet. Eric asked Debbie if she could send a check to cover the cost, about $45. He explained that the payment would be processed faster if she sent it from America. And Debbie readily agreed. She didn't mind. She herself was experiencing all the good that could come from online dating. She was happy to pay it forward. This hook was subtle. The request was so small. Debbie never really considered objecting. And this favor was planted carefully and intentionally. By this point, the rapport and emotional intimacy Debbie and Eric had developed made their chat seem like a safe space. The idea that Eric would intentionally take money from her couldn't have been further from Debbie's mind. According to con expert Maria Konnikova's book, The Confidence Game, there are six key tenets often present in a successful persuasion scenario. Reciprocity, consistency, social validation, friendship or liking, scarcity, and authority. Eric embodied nearly all of them. He was willing to share his story if Debbie shared hers. He was always readily available to chat. He vocalized support for her when she expressed her vulnerability. He told her how special she was to him. He was clear he was her man, and he always had an explanation for why things were happening, even when they seemed a bit off. Most importantly, Debbie was falling for Eric. He made her feel worthy, and if he asked something of her, she felt compelled to say yes. Repaying him in this way made her feel as if it solidified her worthiness. But Debbie's goodwill just opened the floodgates for more requests. A week or two after the $45 ask came another request. This time, Eric asked Debbie to set up a US bank account for his employer to wire paychecks to. He explained that he had a pretty sizable payday coming up, and he wanted to make sure it was secure in an American bank. This seemed logical to Debbie, and so once again, she happily agreed. But the opening of a bank account was just another test. The setup for Eric's first real substantial ask. Eric explained to Debbie that he'd spoken to his banker who had a suggestion. He recommended that Eric clear the Indian bank sending his paycheck to the American account. But there was some cost attached to that. The certificate of ownership required a notarization and processing fee of 6,000 British pounds. In 2010, that shook out to roughly $9,500. Because Debbie had opened the account, Eric needed her to make the initial payment. He promised, of course, to pay her back immediately. This amount caused Debbie to balk. 
but instead of admitting to Eric that the favor made her uncomfortable, it was barely a month into the relationship after all, she decided to take a leap of faith. It was a big request, but she swallowed her doubts, trusting that this was the man she loved. Coming up, Debbie decides whether her growing relationship with Eric is worth the increasing favors he asked of her. Now, back to the story. In 2010, 52-year-old Debbie Montgomery Johnson met a man online, Eric Cole. Though her new beau had checked all the right boxes, a faith-based man with family values, an exciting career, and a willingness to chat about anything Debbie was becoming increasingly aware that Eric came with his own needs. And unfortunately, they were all monetary. Barely a month into their relationship, he asked for a loan amounting to roughly $9,500. It's unclear what Eric said to convince Debbie to make such a large payment. One can guess that she felt inclined to send the money because doing so would reinforce her investment in Eric. Essentially, she hoped contributing to his financial stability would help to ensure that they'd eventually be together. But though she agreed to send the money, it wasn't as simple as going to the bank and setting up a wire. Instead, Debbie recalled, I sent these funds via Western Union and had to split them into two different transactions. I went to public supermarket for the first transfer and the customer representative said, that's a lot of money to be sending to Malaysia. The scope of the transaction clearly wasn't lost to a casual observer, but it was to Debbie. Instead of reflecting on the nature of what she was doing, she felt judged. This woman didn't know their situation, so Debbie simply told the cashier she had to get a friend home for the holidays. Debbie's lie came from a place of feeling scrutinized and defensive. She hadn't expected that she would need to cover up her new relationship, let alone justify it to strangers. She hoped the uncomfortable feeling would pass. And before long, it did. A week or two later, Debbie felt ready to take her relationship with Eric to the next level. Meeting in person. Christmas was right around the corner, and though they hadn't been chatting more than six weeks, Debbie already felt they'd grown close enough to warrant a visit. When she broached the idea with Eric, she was upfront about her desire to have him meet her family. Eric eagerly agreed, but just had one question. He asked if Debbie would help pay for a flight to the States. Thrilled at the prospect of having her boyfriend with her in real life for the first time, Debbie, of course, said yes. She couldn't believe he agreed to come. Debbie was beside herself with joy. They would finally meet. But again, it wasn't so simple as Debbie buying Eric a ticket. Instead, he asked her to wire funds to an account that his friend Peter had in Malaysia. Peter was a colleague, supposedly Eric's lawyer. Eric planned on meeting up with him in port to clear a timber shipment. From there, 
Eric would collect the money Debbie sent and buy a ticket to Florida for the holidays. Debbie wasn't thrilled at the prospect of another Western Union transfer, and she never disclosed exactly how much she sent Eric for the ticket. Again, she chalked up her willingness to transfer the funds to the intense desire for Eric to come home so they could finally be together. But her hopes were overly optimistic. Just before Eric was scheduled to fly to Florida, he pinged Debbie on Yahoo. He had bad news. The shipment he went to clear was stuck in port because of an unpaid tax. If he didn't get it released, the entire delivery would be jeopardized. He might lose the big paycheck he'd been banking on. Then, the chat window chimed as Eric followed with a question. Was there any possible way Debbie could help with covering the tax? Her heart sank. Another holdup, and one with an even higher price tag. This time, Debbie wanted more clarity, at least before sending more money. Eric had already promised he was coming to Florida. She didn't understand how this embargo on the shipment could have happened at the last minute. She recalled, I did get to speak to him on the phone at this point because I needed to discuss this issue with him in person. Debbie claimed that they spoke over a patchy connection. She remembers telling Eric that she would send the money to release the shipment, but she expected to be paid back as soon as he got to the US. Debbie never disclosed the exact amount she sent, just that it was a large sum. In the wake of paying the port tax, Debbie was unsettled. In a journal entry on December 22, 2010, she lamented that she was about to throw in the towel on her Brit. She wrote about their phone conversation and how she later vocalized her fears over instant messaging that she felt Eric was never going to come visit. But Eric simply doubled down. He assured Debbie that he was her man and had endless love for her. He would never do anything to hurt her and she was the only one for his heart's desire. Even still, he didn't buy a flight to Florida with the money she'd wired him. Instead, he gave her hugs from afar and assured her that he would repay every cent of what he owed her. Hurt, but unsure of how to handle the matter, Debbie didn't push back. Despite all of the help and money, Eric never came to Florida. He had told Debbie that getting the shipment released was the fastest way for him to finally meet her. Yet, when all was said and done, he still didn't come. And the spectacle of the shipment effectively distracted Debbie from the reality that Eric had stood her up. Debbie never disclosed whether or not she confronted him about not coming. And over the next 12 months, she funneled thousands more dollars to Eric. On the occasions when Debbie expressed reservations about sending money, Eric always pivoted. Rotating in different excuses helped to disperse the absurdity of the requests. 
He also shifted her attention to other areas of the picture he'd painted. One corner was particularly poignant. His family. Specifically, his older sister, Mary, and his son, Kenny, who lived in England. These nuances to Eric's backstory were exceptional. Soon, Debbie was messaging both Mary and Kenny, furthering the idea that Eric was an invested father and loving brother. Debbie said Mary felt like a sister. Mary was also widowed and struggling to figure out what was in store for the next phase of her life. The women shared their frustrations about Eric's job and how it proved so difficult at times to make their own ends meet when helping him financially. When Debbie's faith in Eric waned, Mary became the person she could trust. She felt solidarity with Mary. With another woman in Eric's life voicing similar struggles, it validated exactly what Debbie was feeling. If Debbie was convinced she'd found a kindred spirit in Mary, then chatting with Eric's son, Kenny, only drew her in further. Eric said Kenny lived with Mary because he traveled so much. Debbie knew from talking to Mary that Kenny was a good kid, but equally missed his dad. When she saw Kenny typing quickly back to her, she pictured the little boy from the pictures on the other end of the screen, tapping at the keyboard with lightning speed, desperate for another parent to care about him. Debbie's penchant to fill in the story of Eric's con isn't uncommon. According to con expert Maria Konnikova, this is literally human nature. We fill in the gaps of something we don't have all the details on with what we want to believe. This kind of self-delusion is exactly what con artists take advantage of. She explained, We infer entire belief systems from one rogue statement, craft personalities and backstories with no bearing on reality from one surface clue. And Debbie had more than one clue. She had photos of Kenny from Eric, with the family dog and stories about life in England. All of it pulled on her heartstrings, making her wonder if their family could also be part of her own. By drawing family into the equation, Eric wove a story filled with believable threads. This also enabled him to play into Debbie's status as a diligent mother. If he told her that Kenny was sick and expressed worry that he couldn't pay for a doctor's visit, Debbie immediately empathized. She imagined herself in that situation and was more willing to give Eric whatever he needed. In turn, Eric was careful not to jeopardize Debbie's goodwill or arouse her suspicion. He was skilled at shoring up the stories he told her. He made sure that if he talked about something regarding his son or sister with Debbie, either Mary or Kenny corroborated the same anecdote later. But Eric couldn't cover every hole. On more than one occasion, Debbie asked to Skype with Mary. But she always dodged the question, often claiming she didn't have a good enough computer. Mary rationalized her inability to video chat within the larger conversation. 
she was hopeful that Eric would buy Mary a better computer once he finished this next big job. More suspicious was the physical proof that showed up on Debbie's front door. After talking to Mary and Kenny for months, she felt inclined to send them gifts. After all, she sent her own family presents, and Eric, Mary, and Kenny now felt like family too. Debbie thought it would be nice to send something, just a little package or postcard. But every piece of mail she shipped always came back stamped with two ominous words. Address unknown. Still, when Debbie asked Eric for an explanation, he managed to talk his way out of it. She explained, Each time I asked Eric what was going on, he came up with a plausible excuse as to why the things were returned. The mail was just another frustrating but accepted part of our relationship. Debbie could live with small obstacles like packages coming back to her doorstep, but it was the constant, seemingly catastrophic events from Eric's job that worried her. At some point in 2011, Eric asked for yet another favor. He was about to be paid for a shipment, but the money was stuck in customs. To clear it, he had to pay a fee. He needed Debbie's help and money yet again. But by then, he'd taken so much from her, Debbie didn't have the money. She was stuck. She knew it wasn't her burden to pay the fee, but she was equally determined to help the man she loved, especially if the money would help finally bring him to the US. She was willing to give just about anything to have Eric with her, face to face, after all this time, no matter the cost. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Debbie's story. When she stumbles onto a surprising revelation about Eric and his mysterious lifestyle, the scam suddenly falls apart. For more information on Debbie Montgomery Johnson, amongst the many sources we used, we found Debbie's autobiography, The Woman Behind the Smile, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Trent Williamson. This episode of Con Artist was written by Mackenzie Moore with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs> <laughs>